This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Witness Docs from Stitcher. Who is your hometown hero? You know. Someone you looked up to when you were a kid. Maybe they were an athlete or an actor or a businessman. Every town has one. They're good at something. They contribute something. Even if you don't really know them. This hometown hero sets an example. They show you what's possible. Now keep that person in mind and let's rewind 70 years to the 1950s, back before the space age, before the internet, before Twitter. In 1954, in a tiny Arkansas town on the Mississippi River, the hero for many was a man named Isidore Banks. He was well over six feet tall, weighed nearly 300 pounds. He was strong, quick, and handsome. Isidore had served in World War I. He owned hundreds of acres of farmland. And he'd become really, really rich. He had seven different plantations. Owned his own trucking business. He had a tavern. He had a restaurant. Isidore Banks may have been the wealthiest person in Crittenden County. I understand that he owned thousands of acres of lands. He had owned cotton gins. He had trucks. He had a cafe, grocery store. You know, he was a corporate giant in this area. Mr. Banks, okay. He was a big farmer up at Round Marion. Good man. Big tall man. Strong man. And he was a very kind man. He was a hard working man, okay? He wasn't afraid. You know, you, you didn't back him down, you know, off of stuff because he just believed in what he believed in and did what he did. People listened to Isidore Banks, looked up to him. His success made him a kind of senior statesman in his community. He would help businesses. He would help put your kid through school. He even helped save farms. If you couldn't get it, you would say you're going to the bank that was going to him, Isidore Banks. He didn't mind helping nobody. That's one of the things I remember. I didn't care what you was, man or woman, he didn't care. He could have been quiet, but his works were very loud. They were loud and they were long-lasting. He's a paradigm, he's a model of freedom. Isidore Banks was also African-American, and in 1954, he was lynched. Everything he had 
His wealth, land, businesses, it was all stolen. His family torn apart. Who was murdered? Who was murdered? Uh, the name is Isidore Banks. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. That was a really controversial murder. There was a murder in 1954 of a man named Isidore Banks. And it's yeah, remained... Yeah, you know about it? We know it happened, but I think it needs to be rested. Uh, I'm really not going to be able to help you, so I'm going to hang out and let you follow your next lane. This is the story of Isidore Banks. It's a story about land, love, and a very old kind of hatred. And it's about how one African-American man's legacy vanished when he was killed in a most American way. I'm Taylor Hom. And I'm Neil Shea. This is Unfinished, Deep South. Episode 1. Isidore Banks. Just as we finished writing and recording the series, America began reckoning with race in a way it hasn't for decades. It started with nearly nine minutes of video. Three police officers kneeling on the neck and back of George Floyd while he struggled to breathe underneath them. From New York to L.A., Minneapolis to Atlanta, tens of thousands of protesters turned out not just to challenge the actions of a few bad cops, but hoping to break a racist system as old as the country itself. We began reporting this series nearly three years ago. But what's true is that you can plot a line from the street where George Floyd died and follow it back 400 years through the unfinished business of race in America. The line crosses and recrosses the country. It traces the history of violence against African Americans and the white silence and complicity that's allowed it to continue. It touches thousands of other names, too. From Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Aubrey, to Mike Brown and Trayvon Martin, from James Byrd and Michael Donald, to Andrew Anderson, Emmett Till. And of course, it reaches back to the man at the center of this story, Isidore Banks. Marion, Arkansas, is a small farm town on the Mississippi River, just across the water from Memphis. Its fields spread broad and flat over old swamp land and ancient Indian mounds, and today they're thick with soybeans, rice, and cotton. It's a pretty town, a blink-and-you-miss-it town, surrounded by railroad tracks and the endless shutter of freight trains. Isidore Banks called this place home from around 1914 until his death in 1954, Back then, fewer than a thousand people lived in Marion, and you couldn't miss Isidore. By middle age, Isidore was a wealthy man. We'll tell you soon how he created that wealth, but for now, what you need to know is that in a region where most African Americans labored on white farms, Isidore owned his land, nearly a thousand acres of dark delta soil. Marion, Arkansas, doesn't have a statue honoring Isidore Banks. But it should. Memories of him are fading fast. Hey. Hi. Are you willing? Right. I am. Are you willing? Sure. Yeah. yeah. I'm Neil. Okay, Neil. Nice right. to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Nice to meet you. This is Willie Gammon. He's tall and thin, and today he's wearing a white cowboy hat against the August sun. 
Willie is a farmer and a former state cop. His family has been farming here for more than a century. In Marion, the Gammons are about as close as you can get to Isidore Banks among the living. Willie was born the year after Isidore was killed. He grew up listening to the story of Isidore Banks, from cousins and neighbors, from his father and uncle who knew Isidore. The Gammons don't know exactly what happened to him, but like other people we met in Marion, Willie has his own idea of why Isidore was killed. So what's your, what's your scenario of what happened to him as a former cop? Well, and, and same thing that happened to most blacks, taking other land. Whites, are, whites want that land, and they are taking land by whatever means necessary. We see a pattern of this in the South. Isidore had too much money, and where did his money go? Willie drives with us in our rental car, tracing Isidore's shadow across town. Okay, we'll go around here. That's be fine. This land would have just been all farmland when Isidore was alive. Right. Remember, Interstate 55 is not here. Okay. Isidore's land is almost as legendary as he is. If he could patch back together all the land that once belonged to him, all those acres would be worth something like $20 million today. So... Isidore would have owned the land right where these two highways came together, right? Exactly. He owned this, too. None of this was here in Isidore Banks' time. Isidore's old farmland is dotted with businesses and houses now. A highway slices through part of it. Can't drive through this town without hitting the same old names over and over again, can you? That's right. Old family names on street signs and memorials the names of politicians, developers, farmers, they're the same as they have been for generations. There's nothing named after Isidore Banks here, but his fingerprints are all over this place. You know where to look. And Willie does. Yeah, that's supposed to be in his house right there. So that's where Isidore lived. That's where he lived. Willie takes us to Isidore's headstone and the old African-American cemetery, then to the old bank where Isidore once kept his money. We drive past slots where his businesses once stood. Straight on? Right, straight on. But it's out at the edge of town, in a weedy lot across from a rail yard, that we finally find a piece of Isidore's past still standing. Maybe the biggest business bet he ever made, and one that might have even gotten him killed. I'm going through Sunset, and we're going to stop there at the gym. The old gin is still there. That'd be awesome. So we'll take a look at it. Willie takes us to the old Grant Cotton Gin, a building that's long and narrow and faintly blue. If you're a cotton farmer, a gin is an essential piece of machinery. It's what separates the tiny black seeds from the bright white cotton fiber so it can be sold and made into cloth. Until the 1800s, enslaved people did this by hand. Then the gin came along, and it was 50 times faster than a human. Cotton gins revolutionized cotton farming and transformed southern agriculture. So this is the this is the gin that Isidore and, and his associates right. own. Own right here. Can we go inside? <laughs> I, they got locks on it. Oh, they're smart then. Back in the 1940s and 50s, this gin ran through the night. But it's been abandoned for decades. Broken locks hang from its doors. So Neil hauls open one, and we stare into the huge, empty space, trying to imagine what it had been like in Isidore's day. One of Willie's cousins, Ida Gammon, joins us. 
and she remembers. Somewhere in a Farm Bureau magazine is a picture of this gin with, I must have been about 12, my brother was nine, and we're standing in a bale of cotton. And of course, it's just so clean you can wash your face in it because it's just been ginned here. Really? That was the point. It had just been ginned here in the, wow. in the first co-op gin of African Americans in the state of Arkansas. The Arkansas Delta stretches for hundreds of miles along the Mississippi River, and it was once one of the most productive cotton regions in the world. Cotton is king, but there was a day when few people believed that cotton would have as many uses as it does in today's world. During Isidore's day, the Delta produced nearly 40% of America's cotton. And while African Americans had come to own a lot of farmland in the area, the rest of the cotton industry hadn't changed much since the era of slavery. Whites sold the seeds and the fertilizers. They owned the tractors and the transport. They owned the cotton gins, too, and often used them to cheat African-American farmers. By 1948, Isidore and his neighbors were fed up. So they joined forces, and they built their own gin. People would line up. The order in which you arrived was the order in which you were served at this gin. Across the road was the white gin, <laughs> where the order in which you arrived had nothing to do with the order in which you were served. And... So this gin became very popular simply because arriving in order, whether you were black or white, was how you got served. And just a few years after it opened, the gin was worth more than half a million dollars. That's five million dollars today. But Isidore never really enjoyed that success, because right as the gin paid off, he was lynched. The killing rocked the African-American community. They'd seen lynchings before, but this was different. For much of his life, Isidore's wealth had insulated him. He had lived 59 years and managed to thrive despite decades of racial terror. So what changed? Why was Isidore killed? And why then? After all those years of survival and relative safety, what broke down? This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley. 
for the love of home. Neil and I live a long way from Isidore's Crittenden County in Brooklyn, New York. I'm a documentary filmmaker, and Neil's a print journalist. We first heard about Isidore Banks three years ago. Donald Trump had just been elected president. We had been working mostly outside the U.S., but we decided we wanted to report on our own country, to look inward. We came across a list of unsolved race crimes compiled by the FBI. There were dozens of victims, reaching back to the 1930s. It was a partial accounting of America's unfinished business. And it seemed like that business was bubbling back up, reminding us that we all had a stake in it. The list was also a reminder of just how many white people had gotten away with murder, how willing they were to accept it, partake in it, and cover it up. Under President George W. Bush, the FBI had promised to investigate all those unsolved cases. But by the time we read the list, most of them had been opened and closed without any new developments. Isidore Banks's case was one of them. The feds said it would probably never be solved. But as we read about Isidore, a few things stood out. First, it didn't look like the FBI had tried very hard. Second, Isidore seemed like an amazing guy. Larger than life, but 100% real. We wanted to know more. But a lynching does more than kill a body. It shatters an identity. So to really understand Isidore, we couldn't just focus on his death. We had to see him alive, to recover as much of his story as we could. So in late 2016, we began searching through archives and sorting through piles of old records. We made the first of hundreds of phone calls, started reconstructing Isidore's world, his struggles, his relationships. Today, Isidore's family lives scattered across the country. Some still remember him, and they want to know, like we do, what really happened to him. He was a massive man in every respect. He was just a large man. This is James Banks, Isidore's son. He's 75 years old, a tall, solid guy with his dad's strong features. He goes by Jim, and he lives in a quiet suburb of Memphis. He was a relatively handsome guy. He always usually wore khakis and in the wintertime a bomber jacket and a hat. He never wore ties or anything like that. He never tied his shoes. Jim says his father was an early riser. He'd head out near dawn to check his fields, and then he'd meet with his younger brother and business partner, Norman. The two would talk, then each would go off alone into his day. Isidore usually drove his black Chevy pickup to the center of town, where he'd park and watch Marion come to life. He'd read the paper, greet neighbors as they passed, drink a cup of coffee. It was a surprising habit for an African-American man in this town, because Marion was the center of power in the county, white power. But for Isidore, Marion was also home. He felt like he was just the man. He didn't feel inferior to anyone. He'd walk into places where Blacks were not allowed to just walk right in. Because everybody knew him, it was not that unusual for him to do that. You know, this is Isidore, and, and that's it. Isidore lived as an anomaly, moving back and forth across the color line. His wealth and light skin helped, 
But Jim says something else helped, too. Isidore built working relationships with some of the most powerful white families in town. There's always been a respect in the South for Black people who were accomplished. They referred to them as coming from good stock. And so they always treated them differently than they did, say, the sharecropper or someone who had very little. That's always been that way, and it still is until today. Isidore's reputation opened doors. His boldness and business savvy closed deals. In a world ruled by whites, his poise, his composure, must have been incredible. But at some point, for some reason, everything changed. Everything that kept Isidore safe was swept away overnight. Jim Banks was just 11 years old when it happened. He was supposed to come get us to take us shopping for school clothes. And so my mother was getting very angry. But the next day when he didn't come home, she knew something was not right about this. And then it went through all the day, throughout the day, and the next day. Over two days, Jim watched his mother go from angry to worried to terrified. There was no way to check on Isidore. No way to know where he'd been. Just silence, then rumors. And finally, a knock at the door. Uncle Norman came. uh, My mom opened the door. He just looked at her. And she had that, like, that piercing look, you know, what are you going to tell me? And he said, they found Isidore. And it looks like he's been, um, it looks like a lynching. And she just collapsed right there. For a minute, Jim thought he'd lost his mother, too. And I thought she was dead, because I'd never seen her faint or any, I don't think I've ever seen anybody, uh, had, who did that. You know, she just fell out just like that. And I thought she was dead, and I was thinking, oh, my God. Jim had been angry at his father just before he was killed. They had a complicated relationship. Isidore could be tough. He didn't talk very much. I thought, oh, my God. I caused this because I, I had prayed in my own way that he wouldn't come home. And I carried that guilt for years. I mean, even into my adulthood before I was able to let it go that I was not the cause of, of this happening to him. Do you remember the days or the immediate aftermath of when your mom learned about Isidore's killer? Oh, yes. Do I remember? Because that was a very, very dark time. People were afraid and scared to death. I could actually feel the fear of others around me, of everybody. When the sun went down, it was like nobody around. It's just like everybody was inside. And it was a very frightening situation, very frightening uh, to watch how people reacted to that. Jim's family had no idea why Isidore had been killed. And that mystery, that confusion, it only made them more terrified. We can't, as a family, we couldn't find out who hated him quite that bad. How, that, because he seemed to have had a lot of rapport with the whites in the area. And there was a second mystery. All that land they thought belonged to Isidore, it didn't. At least, not officially. All records of his land was destroyed. It's like he had nothing. He had no land. He had no property. He had nothing except the truck that he drove. 
But it's like everything just simply disappeared. There was no land, there was no money, nothing. Everything just like that was just in, as if it wouldn't have existed. Isidore died with almost nothing, according to his probate file. Just a pickup truck and a few hundred dollars to his name. But that doesn't square with what Jim Banks and other relatives remember. To them, Isidore was wealthy right up until he died. They say he owned a thousand acres of land, maybe more. We see this happen over and over in the South. You could call it the lynching effect. Because a lynching isn't just about murder. It's about trying to erase someone. And it goes way beyond money or land. In Isidore's case, the erasure was so complete that for years, some of his relatives didn't even know he existed. My name is Marcelina Maria Williams, but I prefer to be called Lena. And I am the granddaughter of Mr. Isidore Banks. Lena is 53. She's a mother, a grandmother, and she lives in the suburbs of St. Louis. All right, Lena. How did you first learn about your grandfather, Isidore, and what had happened to him? Oh, wow. That was when I was, I was quite young. My mother was going to uh, Forest Park College, and she had her Black History book out. I love Black History, and um, I I got her book, and I was looking through it. You know, there was some gruesome scenes in there, and it was one particular one, and I ran to my mother. I'm like, look at this, look at this. And my mother looked at it, and she started screaming, that's my father, that's my daddy, that's my daddy. I'm like, huh? She said, that's my daddy. And it was a picture of him, what they had did to him. And that's how I found out about him. My mother, she was open about a lot of things. But when it came to that, you know, my mother didn't talk about that at all times. She always thought they was going to still come and get her. Lena was an adult before she finally learned more about her grandfather. It was 2007 when the FBI compiled that list of old cases we told you about, the unsolved murders from the civil rights era. At the time, a local news station did a story about the FBI list, and that's when Lena saw her grandfather's name scroll past on the TV screen. She sat up, started Googling, and soon she began her own investigation. A few years later, Lena's story caught the attention of a reporter from CNN, and then she found herself on TV during a ceremony at Isidore's graveside commemorating his military service. Lena told the camera that her grandfather's legacy had been stolen. And I would not rest until America, as they say, give us our justice, closure, our land, our compensation for our land in his death. By the time she appeared on CNN, she'd made several trips from St. Louis to Marion, Arkansas. She'd interviewed dozens of old-timers. She'd called senators and state reps and FBI agents. It was, um, first, first it was um, President Obama. The next one was Clinton, since he was governor of Arkansas. And then he was president. Governor Beebe, he was awesome. He was a really awesome guy. Julian Fogelman, which was his, um, Attorney at that time, I reached out to him. I reached out to Mayor Frank Fogelman. 
of, of Arkansas, the Marion Police Department, Chief uh, Gary Kelly, Director Dan Flowers, and I got a hold of um. But for all of Lena's effort, the case went cold again. In 2009, the FBI closed East Door's file. For Lena, her investigation had been bittersweet. She had discovered so much about her grandfather, but she hadn't found justice. Today, Lena knows two things for sure. First, Isidore's killing was meant to send a message. The message was, if we can get to him, we can get to you. And that was the biggest message they could send by killing Isidore Banks. And second, someone in Marion is hiding the truth. Because a lot of people have a lot to lose. You mean his land? The land that he owned? The land, yes, yes. Land, money, a lot to lose. The same ones that are in power today were in power then. Whether it's them or whether it's that next generation, it's the same ones. And they know it. And they now know I know it. My grandfather was my hero. He died. He died and saved my mother so that I could live. And I'd be doggone if I let him down now. It was fun when I was down there, I put it like that. It was fun. Jumping off the hay, off of the building, into the haystacks and all that, you know. Yeah, that makes playgrounds today look pretty boring. Boring, you know, and it, really, we, we really had fun down there. We really did. This is Dorothy Williams. She's Lena's mother and Jim's half-sister. She was just five years old when her father was killed. For decades after, she wouldn't talk about him. I kept it to myself. Because I didn't know who was up here. That might want me and my family. So I always kept it to myself. Up until she brought it out. I guess my daughter says it's time for you to stop hiding now. Dorothy is 70 years old. We talk with her in a small apartment outside St. Louis where she lives with two of her great-grandchildren. One of them, a six-year-old, sits by Dorothy's side. He listens wide-eyed while she talks about the moment her life changed, when even her powerful father couldn't protect her anymore. You told us that you started to see things down on the railroad tracks that people were doing to send a warning. What were they doing on the railroad tracks to send you a warning? They were killing them. What were they killing? Killing our stuff, our livestock, our, our, our puppies and cats and dogs and all that kind of stuff. They was killing what we was using to play with. Anything that we possessed, they got rid of, little by little. They even sprayed our, our land so we couldn't grow no peas and stuff like that. And that's when Daddy put us on the, on, on the trail and sent us up here. One day, Isidore gave Dorothy's mother a bag stuffed with cash. And then suddenly, they were in a truck headed north, leaving. And, and Daddy um, uh, hired somebody to get us, put us on, a, on this long truck because they didn't want nobody following us from down south. And they put us on there. And that's the last I've seen them. I don't know if we could have died or not, but then we had to get away from down there. 
Next thing Dorothy knew, she was looking out at the St. Louis skyline. She'd never seen so many lights. It was beautiful, like a dream. And then, not long after they arrived, the phone call came. Dorothy can't remember whether her mother screamed or cried or took the news quietly, but she never spoke of Isidore's murder. And six years later, at the age of 49, she died. They took our life when they took away my daddy. It wasn't that we died, but it was all the goodness and good treatments and all that died. We were like little poor little kids and had them have food to put in the mouth. You know how they talked about welfare kids. Back then, you know, they made fun of them, laughed at them, threw rocks at them. That's how they did us. Because we couldn't talk like y'all talk. We had no voice. But I want to let you know, man, it hurts. You hear what I say? It's been a long time. But it still hurts. It hurts. And it's going to probably hurt till I die. Because I never got a chance to. I never got a chance to say goodbye. Before her mother died, Dorothy managed to piece together a story from newspaper clippings sent by relatives or whispered in person during family visits. What do you think it was that, that got Isidore killed? He had too much money, baby. He just had too much money. Don't nobody, down, don't nobody in the South down there have much money like he had and live. You ain't going to live down there and uh, got more money than they have. I'm, I'm, I'm just telling you the real truth. You're not going to do it. And see, Daddy had all the most beautiful land. His land was good. Everything he had, because he had his own plantation workers. He had a big old white house in the city of Marion. He was just too rich for the South. They didn't care what color he was, because his daddy was not my color. He was more so you all's color. But they didn't give a damn about that. He had too much money. In 1954, the county sheriff refused to call Isidore's murder a lynching. According to the local newspaper, the sheriff didn't believe race had anything to do with the crime. He told the FBI that his men were investigating, but they never made any arrests, and the case went cold. Over time, a thicket of rumors grew up around Isidore's death, and we spent more than two years hacking through it all. Things like objective facts were hard to come by, and the records that we did find in the courthouse, in newspapers, and libraries, they were all suspect, because they had been made by and four white people during the era of Jim Crow. We are on a mission to find out who killed Isidore Banks. We have to look not just at the man, but at the town that erased him. The complicated race relations here, the power struggles between rich whites and poor whites, and the stories they're willing to tell, along with the ones they won't. We'll even look into another murder, one that may be part of a cover-up. But to do any of this, we had to learn to see the past differently. We had to learn from academics who study the lives of people who've been omitted and erased. We got used to working with stories that can't be proven, at least not the way you prove something in court. In Marion, we found people who still remembered Isidore, who still wanted to know what happened to him. 
They told us that to find the killer, we had to follow the money. So we did. And when you follow the money, you find the sheriff. Next time on Unfinished Deep South. Black folk owned most of the farmland around Crittenden County. When did that start to change? When they got this new sheriff. So people would go default on their taxes? No, nah, hell no. He just lied. Gilbert never really bought anything. Shit, he took stuff. Unfinished Deep South is a production of Witness Stocks from Stitcher and Market Road Films. Written and produced by us, Taylor Hom and Neil Shea. Editing by Peter Clowney, Gianna Palmer, and Tracy Samuelson. The show is produced by Laura Kalaluri and Stephanie Kariuki. Our executive producers are Lynn Nottage, Tony Gerber, Peter Clowney, and Chris Bannon. Our mixing engineer is Casey Holford. Deep South features blues, folk, and gospel music performed by Hubby Jenkins. Original theme music and score by Casey Holford, with musicians Ryan Thornton and Dan Costello. Thanks to our fact-checker, Soraya Shockley. Special thanks to the extended family of East Door Banks, who gave generously of their time, their patience, and their memories. Thanks also to Professor Margaret Burnham and the Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Project at Northeastern University, to Willie Gammon, and to the 78 Project. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.